Welcome to Packet Pushers, the greatest ever data networking podcast on the internet, well, more or less today. I've often wondered myself, how do people outside the networking silo see the network? I mean, what do they understand? What do they comprehend? And it's a really important issue because communication within uh, IT infrastructure teams or around teams requires empathy, and empathy needs some form of understanding between the parties to be able to get the message across. And because networking is largely a niche and a somewhat esoteric technology, especially when you get into the details, it's actually rare for other people on the other side of the table to actually understand us. They don't speak our language. They don't understand our vernacular. They don't understand the sorts of concepts that matter to us. And so quite often it becomes a one-sided conversation where it's up to the network engineer to understand what the people on the other side of the table will do because it's up to us to reach out to them. It's not reasonable or fair for them to understand us because actually we're just that obscure. So a few weeks ago when Dave McCrory published a multi-part series of blog posts where he'd been researching network switches and network connectivity as part of his work, I thought that was really uh, an insight to me to be able to say, this is how people outside our business see us. And so I'm pleased to say that Dave McCrory is joining us today. So Dave, why don't you introduce yourself to the audience and tell them uh, what led you down the path to discover the intricacies of network hardware? Thanks, Greg. So... I'm Dave McCrory. I'm the CTO of a company called Basho Technologies. Uh, we make a, uh, several open source projects that are uh, distributed databases. And I've done a few things with networking, but I must admit my networking knowledge and technology is 20 years old. So I understand some of the networking basics, but uh, for example, how a switch is built, uh, how it actually operates internally, I'm a novice at best. And since writing this series, uh, I've gotten a lot of interesting feedback from people. Mm. Uh, what, what led me to write about this is really many of the struggles in cloud and in distributed systems and other things that people face because we don't use the knowledge and the things that have been accomplished with networks inside of the distributed systems. And what I mean by that is if you have, say, a, uh, a cluster of servers um, and you want to maintain uh, consistency. And what I mean by consistency is we'll take the simplest kind of storage, a key and a value. So you can have a, a key. So you'd say the key is A and the value is 1. So if you wanted to know what A's value is, you would say get A and the system would respond with a value of 1. Hmm. That's really the simplest kind of storage uh, uh, mechanism for distributed systems that's out there. Well, it's the simplest form of database, really. You know, normally and yes, then yes, you sorry. have query languages which then look up keys to get values and all that sort of thing. But at the end of the day, every database is fundamentally a key value store. Uh, it's just part of it, it, or the variety of databases is, this is a whole art form, so I'm going to be grossly, <laughs> you know, whatever. But you, fundamentally, you're always looking for a key to find a value that's stored in the database. That's right. I mean, it, and it's simply how you find the keys and, and such. The, the problem comes in when the database is distributed. Um, so it's spread across many servers, and you want uh, you want to make sure that it is consistent. And what I mean by that is if uh, on server one, the value for A is one, but on server two, it has not been updated yet with that information because it has to travel across the network and through systems, its value might be two. Hmm. And so because one of the servers believes the value of A is one, 
the other server believes the value of A is 2, you have an inconsistent state across your database. That's the fundamental problem that systems that are eventually consistent, which is what I just described, uh, have. And that's a simple example with distributed systems. The reason is because uh, there's no visibility into uh, the other systems unless you directly attach to them. So there's no ability to know what's happening on all of the other servers in that cluster. And so that causes all sorts of problems. And this is a, a very simple, contrived example, I'll admit. Mm. But the the reality is uh, that we have uh, so many issues where if systems could better cooperate and use knowledge that's in the network, uh, they could operate more efficiently. And in some cases, I believe, could be much simpler in the way they're implemented. Mm. And that's really what the motivation was. Right. So I think you're talking there, there's a, a fine article called The Fallacies of Distributed Computing. When you build a distributed application, you're effectively locking state into, well, in, in this case, a database, because Basho is about an enterprise scale, a scalable distributed database system, right? And everybody sort of thinks, well, if I put 10 computers on the network, the network is going to always be available latency is zero, bandwidth is infinite, you know, and so on and so forth. And if I put an entry in this computer, it will just mystically appear at this one over here. And when distributed systems get under load and or start to scale, putting an entry in this server, in the database on this server, and it might take seconds to replicate out to others. And now you've got a problem because the network in between might have some sort of delay or latency or um, issue. That's right. Mm. That's Absolutely right. And not having the knowledge that that latency exists um, uh, will cause problems with the application's behavior because one version of the application that's reading from this portion sees one thing and another copy of the application that's over here sees something different. Mm. And either the application has to handle that or the people using the application have to handle that in in that case. And Mm -hmm. uh, oftentimes the writers of the application do not handle it. Mm. Well, and yeah, many distributed databases have come afoul of the fact that the network um, is a variable a system. It's not an absolute. It's the There's only guarantees in the network are zero. And it, you've always got to be re- regarding the fact that data gets replicated as a, a, a matter of luck <laughs> because the network is not reliable. <laughs> the network is not reliable, you know, um, and, and other factors. So effectively, I, so I have this envisioning this idea that you're now in a data center, probably an enterprise data center. You're plugging in a number of, uh, uh, you know, uh, React hosts, which is the, the where Basho works, and you're starting to be aware of the fact that the network is now part of your installation problem or part of the challenge. What the design is that? What led you down this path? It's the idea of um, knowing what the other nodes in my in my system are doing and what their what their general state is mm. uh, and coordinating with them. So uh, that's the trick is always coordinating with all of these other nodes and you're going through this unreliable thing called the network um, mm. to uh, to try and understand uh, what state these all of these other systems are in and it becomes uh, very complex. So if there was a way for the network to help you, or coordinate with you, 
the idea being that uh, that could increase efficiency and accuracy, at least of knowing what the other nodes are doing. It doesn't guarantee that you can improve everything uh, in all cases, but it would, would certainly tell you, uh, I know for a fact that this node is offline because the switch port is shut off that goes to that mm. node. Therefore, you're not going to be able to communicate with that node no matter what you'd like to do. Again, well, a simple example. Yeah, and a simple point of and a simple failure mode that's easy to detect. If that node is offline, then you don't write to it. What's worse is if you actually put a write to it, and then there's a, a, a significant latency in actually confirming that the write was performed. Well, that's right, and the the reality is um, the difference between latency and something being offline is purely a function of time. Hmm. Yeah. Well. Yes. There's In other words, if something if there's a long enough delay, it's the same thing as being off. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> well, it might as well be. But in the worst case, it's actually consistently performing slowly or intermittently responding, and so that you actually never tag it as out, and then you never know whether it's the network or the server or the operating system or the instance itself. Very true. And then if we add in. If we add in virtual instances or containers, things just get even more complex. They, <laughs> they don't become simpler. No. No, this microservices is going to be awesome for somebody, but not the people who build the infrastructure. I, I, th I think you're right. <laughs> Having implemented microservices in an enterprise, um, uh, I can tell you uh, there are a huge, huge number of pitfalls and navigating all of the problems and such is not a simple task and mm -hmm. I know when we were doing it early on this is when I worked uh, at uh, at Warner Music Group mm. uh, we made quite a few mistakes and it caused some really complicated situations uh, so it, it it is something that I think the the industry is moving to but it's wrought with peril mm. so you said in your first blog post uh, that I alluded to in the opening that you had a conversation with James Urquhart who said that all network switches and routers were really just computers. And you hadn't, I mean, did you not realize that they were basically just like any other computer with a an x86 motherboard and an ASIC? Or was that, how did that inspiration come about? I always saw networks, again, thinking of going back 20 plus years when I learned about networks not the physical hardware but how networks worked at a mm. in those days a much more simplistic level and i always thought of them as a specialized device much like a uh, a modern graphics card mm. is it is a computer but it's not a computer if that makes sense it's yes. much more of a highly specialized thing that that is very task specific, but I didn't look at it as an actual computer until James said that. It just hmm. was formed differently in my mind from the days of bridges and hubs, and uh, th those were the days when I was working with uh, uh, with networks when um, when a sixteen megabit token ring was yep. like super ultra modern, <laughs> like I mean advanced. Yes. that's when I was yes. working with networks. Well, they genuinely were specialized in those days because mostly they were focused on the electrical signaling, not on the protocols like at the upper layers. So, so drawing from, from that knowledge, um, I always just saw them as, as very different uh, mm. things. Um, 
And so when James explained to me that, you know, no, they're all computers. And then I started thinking, well, if it's a computer and I have these other computers that are talking to and through this computer, why can't there be some degree of intelligence in that computer to help me coordinate my cluster or some other simple problem? Um, They're problems of if you wanted to have a simple, let's say you wanted a shared counter, just an incrementing counter. If you try to do that with a cluster of servers and just have that uh, counter incrementing up, it turns out to be difficult. Mm. Uh, because you, you're trying to keep the state of that counter in all of the different uh, nodes or servers, and uh, that's hard. Uh, if you coordinate and have a single instance of that counter, it's a trivial problem. In other words, if there's a single computer that simply has to increment a number, that is something that even the most novice programmer can can implement. Mm. Um, trying to distribute a counter and coordinate so that Every time you ask that counter for a value, no matter what node you hit in your cluster, that it will be incremented from the previous, uh, that's a far more complex problem. So you started to think about, could I shift these counters or keys that the database is using for synchronization into the network itself? That's right. Right. And because they're just computers, maybe the switch could have some have a software in it that would actually help out with that. And that would be independent of the servers themselves. So... Um, then you, you, in your blog post, you started to discover that, like the insides of switches. So what, what was it about those that sort of, that you learned out of that, you know, about ASICs and computers and memory and hard drives? Not being a, uh, I'm using air quotes that you cannot see, but not being <laughs> a, a deep hardware guy. Yeah. Um, I actually came across, um, several of your blog posts starting to learn about how, uh, how switching fabrics work and such, and that began to educate me um, a bit. Uh, and at the same time, starting to understand how these custom ASICs and things are focused on optimization of pushing packets. Uh, literally, that is the that is the sole purpose, and that you have buffering that happens and the development of switching fabrics, and really you're dealing with layers of buffers to ensure that you can alleviate congestion and kind of smooth the flow of things, um, uh, if at all possible, uh, of, of packets and data. And I thought, well, if you could tap into some of that, it would be, uh, be incredibly valuable and powerful. And as I've gone down my adventure and, and posted uh, and did the, the post of the series, I've had quite a few people um, reach out to me in all different aspects. So uh, I sat down with the CTO of a networking company um, at, uh, at a conference, and he educated me on the hardware itself. Mm. Um, I mean, this was a two and a half, three hour conversation explaining to me the hardware in modern network switches. Very, very insightful. And uh, in some ways, uh, in some ways, upsetting to me. Um, the, the fundamental thing that I'll share with everyone was the revelation that if you use anything that we call a uh, a switch today, uh, that if you wanted to implement any of these things inside it, you would have to cross a uh, an Ethernet bridge or an Ethernet port um, on both sides. 
Mm. So it would be the same thing as having to plug in a separate machine that was uh, that was dedicated to uh, to these capabilities. Um, and and I I tried numerous uh, numerous inquiries on uh, well, what if you you know what if you tried this? What if you went across uh, a, a PCI bus or some other internal thing? Mm. And it all boils down to um, the way modern switching has evolved. Uh, they are commoditized to the point of just being a what I'll call a hardwired uh, uh, fabric and that fabric is optimized for inexpensive flowing of packets and nothing more. And mm. any anything you try to do on top of that, um, and this is my current understanding based, again, on several of those conversations, um, isn't going to be any more effective than if you just connected a server up uh, to one of the ports on that existing Ethernet switch. Yeah. Um, and sadly, the economic value um, to implement something like that um, isn't there because of the commoditization of switches. Uh, and we continue to see that commoditization um, being driven further and further and further. Yeah, that, I think what you're saying there is that the switching fabrics inside of the switches are highly specific silicon and the ability to start saying, could the silicon hold some state for me? Could it track some variables for me? It's just not a feature that's in the silicon. We could do this inside of the switch. It is possible to build software or apps on the switch itself that run in the operating system. But at the end of the day, the local operating system is still connected to a you know 10 gig, 100 gig port on the ASIC, in which case, why don't you just connect it to a server because that would make it easier to administrate. Exactly. So that was the that was the deep learning of of being privileged enough to have time with uh, with some of these networking experts to educate mm -hmm. me again. I you know I, I don't have this knowledge. Well, I have it now, but that's because I I was able to speak with experts like yourself and others that mm -hmm. actually understand how uh, these things are put together and how they work. So uh, certainly been valuable at least uh, in my mind. Mind to, to learn this and and I do plan on writing um, a follow-on series to this uh, that uh, that covers kind of where things are headed um, because of I guess these revelations and some of the things that I've seen um, and oddly because of the way things are headed I wonder what's going to happen because uh, the networks themselves, are already complex. We're putting overlays and other things on top of them. Hmm. And now we are attaching the equivalent of proxies and switches to um, container instances and things. And yeah. that gives us amazing configurability, but uh, the complexity and, uh, and such is also through the roof. Yeah, you're uh, referring there to the Istio project that came out of um, one of the one of the biggest startups, Lyft. And um, I've been, yes. as someone who's been running proxy servers for 20 years, they're going to discover how difficult that is pretty soon. <laughs> uh, I, 
I agree with you. Um, yeah. it, it is, it, it, but what I will say is, um, the, the reports, uh, that I heard in the Istio, um, session that were at, uh, that were at Glucon where I was, um, there was apparently a team inside of Google running an instance of, uh, of the list, uh, project proxy. Um, and, uh, they were the latencies that they were getting were um, this is this is due to the proxy itself were yes. ten microseconds. Mm-hmm. That's rec- that's receiving something and then spitting it either into a container or out of the container mm-hmm. uh, back through. So the impact of the okay. proxy was ten Must- microseconds. So it would have to be supporting DPDK at that point, I imagine, to get that sort of speed. And internally, end-to-end latency in in the network, from what was described, was ten milliseconds, yeah. um, it, which is, I think, good, interesting, and positive. The the problem is that's an awful lot of instances and things, and seems like an awful lot of complexity when it comes time to troubleshooting and such. But I, I guess if you build your app in the right ways, it uh, probably not such an issue i think what gets lost in all of this are the 30 plus years of legacy applications that there is no way you could easily put into one of these containers and do these things with and none of that is going to disappear for a long time it's an interesting discussion right at the end of the day if you want to do load balancing which is fundamentally what envoy and istio is is it's a load balancer of some complexity or simplicity and I've been working on these for, you know, 10, 20 years or something like that. And, and these, these points in the network always end up being the, where the state is held. So if the, if the external query comes in from the internet and hits a load balancer, whether it's an Istio or an F5 or, a, you know, some other load ba- a TCP load balancer using Nginx, they become the owners of state inside of the infrastructure. And then behind them is the application container, which is typically what Istio is trying to achieve is this microservice-focused load balancer. And so if Istio sends a packet onto the microservices container or a flow, not a, not a packet, but a flow of packets onto the container, it's the one holding the state. And it now has to hold that state for that flow until the flow is terminated by the user. Is that that's fair? I think so. We should be specific mm-hmm. in that the Lyft project itself is the proxy portion is called envoy envoy and then istio is the package that includes envoy but istio is the coordinator slash backplane for envoy doing all of the coordination and synchronization between many instances of envoy and envoy is that actual proxy instance that would run right next to the container right okay so now you're talking about state managing state. So now you've got the load balancer, and then above it you've got a load balancer manager, which is then making sure that the state information is distributed between all instances of the load balancer. Is that correct? Not sharing state necessarily amongst all of them, but more coordinating. There is a degree of state, though, and you're trying to replicate out um, uh, oh. routes and um, and such between uh, between instances and making sure that they know how to communicate with one another. Mm-hmm. I, I think the goal, 
and this is my naive understanding since I'm not part of either of these projects, mm. is to make it so that uh, if it's really to give a direct path from or a logical direct path from one container to another where I know that I need this service that's located on this container and I know the IP address and, and such. So I'm going to give you a direct pathway to that container and uh, away you go. But it is maintaining a state and it is, I guess, state on state as you, as you described. Yeah. You have to have it. It's somewhere in the tr- The challenge with containers this is why I'm so frustrated by containers is that it, because containers are intended to be transient or temporary and might be measured, you know, might have life cycles measured in seconds is that how containers find other containers or find permanent resources in the network and how do the permanent, how do those resources find the sources back? So if you are instantiating, like if you're dynamically loading up a container instance to dynamically load out, so if you go from having 50 lo- fifty units, 50 containers on the front end, and now you want 100 containers to handle an increased load, now you have to find it's pretty easy in Kubernetes to increase the instantiations from 50 to 100, but then you have to start directing traffic to them. And then something's well, got to happen. I think that's ha- what Istio is supposed to do. Yeah, that's right. Uh, I, well, I'm just reading it on the fly as I'm talking to you. So if Istio is doing that on the fly, then Istio is holding the state. So... And the way that Istio is doing this is it's having an external piece of software that's like a controller, and then there's an agent installed into each container so that it can then decide where it wants to send them to, I think. Well, that's no, I think the proxy is mm. is what's doing that. So that's what Envoy is doing, is it's sitting between the container and, and yeah. the network in all cases. So yeah. every single container instance instantiated has a proxy, an Envoy proxy in front of it, Mm-hmm. And therefore, you have awareness of everything that's going on, air quotes yeah. again, in the network, because you're in front of all of those containers. Oh, I see how it works. Yeah. So there's a proxy in the container, or it's a separate container? It's a separate container. So all containers have a have a sidecar, is what mm. they call it. And yeah. that sidecar is an instance of Envoy. Which then talks to the actual container that runs the app that you wanted it. That's right. See, to somebody who's been running infrastructure for twenty years, this is very odd. This is like a step backwards. If it sort of like says, uh, "I'm running a cloud infrastructure, therefore I have to retrofit load balancing into a cloud infrastructure that doesn't readily support load balancing." Well, you're right. Mm-hmm. I think the goal has been though that they have yet to be able to find another path that gives them universal ability to deploy on any cloud or other container technology that will work in all cases. Mm. And so this kind of, um, this approach will work every time. It will work on Amazon. It will work on, you know, Azure will work on your local, you know, OpenStack instance. It'll work yeah. on whatever you're looking to do. Um, but it does make things more complex Supposedly, it can be automated. Um, mm. That's so, and apparently, Google is using this internally for some of their Kubernetes stuff. So, I'm assuming that based on all of that, uh, uh, that it must work at some level of scale. It's not the scaling of it that bothers me. 
uh, in sense, it's kind of like this is a solved problem in self-owned infrastructure where you use a load balancer and uh, load balancers from various companies do this without having to distribute software instances around the network. Now, if you take away access to the physical network then and everything is done inside of the overlay, so as an NFV or network functions virtualized instance, then you start to have to work around the limitations of the infrastructure that you're using. So that is, if if your only tool is a hammer, every problem looks like a nail. So where before I would say I could have 10, 10, web, 10 Apaches or 20 Apaches or 30 Apaches or I would want to route over here if I've got five, five Apache servers which are optimized for image delivery and over here is five web servers optimized for HTML delivery and I've actually tuned you know the setup and then over here is my Nginx which is running my Node.js and it's optimized for the Node.js delivery and then I would actually use a load balancer to um, route paths, URL paths to those pools of resources. Whereas it seems like Envoy is saying, well, I've only got containers, so now I have to put something in the container to do my load balancing in a container and to distribute the load around amongst the instances. Is that? I, I think I think that's right. Mm. I think it's really taking the network logic and trying to put it uh, uh, as part of the... Yeah, yeah, as part of the it, 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 as part of the application, if it really uh, it's it's that whole sidecar thing uh, is because you want it attached at the hip to uh, to the application, but you don't want the application code to directly interact with uh, with the networking code. So the trade off is to have it act as this uh, transparent sidecar proxy, um, where any any flow in or out. Uh, happens through this, but it also indicates to me that we're now taking almost all of the routing functionality and everything else and shoving mm. that uh, into software um, as well. Mm. Yes. So now that it's effectively you've implemented a distributed load balancer, I think. So hopefully, I haven't had enough time to sit down and read and think about this, but it looks to me like I need to do a containerized load balancer where my only infrastructure is containers. So how do I solve that problem? And I kind of look at it and go like, why would you use a container? So let's assume that that's an assumption I can't make. (laughs) uh, I would then go, why don't you use a VM, like an ES instance, and put a load balancer product into there? And that could be something as simple as Nginx, and it could scale all the way up to a commercial load balancer, and you wouldn't need Istio. But if I, let's say that that's not practical because your environment is purely container-centric and your orchestration is Kubernetes, and the only thing you want to orchestrate is containers because that's your business logic, that's the technical logic. You don't want to be um, suddenly managing a tool that's outside of your core technical competency. So this is what you would have to do. But there's an awful lot of overhead in this and there's an awful lot of opportunities for this to go wrong in terms of synchronization and distributed state spread out amongst many containers somewhere in an infrastructure that leaves a whole lot of questions around stability and instability that I would struggle with. It's interesting because I think there's a trade-off now that you explain that. Uh, You're right. There's risk of instability, there's risk of, of uh, problems and, and such. Uh, at the same time, there are advantages on the application side in that um, you can do A-B testing, you can do uh, canaries and other things to see as you are tr- 
trying to rapidly evolve your, your application container, um, you can minimize the risk of, uh, of deploying a bad application um, at scale. Uh, so I, I see the positives that they're, that they're espousing. I just wonder, is it really going to be something where we see a lot of downtime and problems and, and such as described, or is it something that's going to be a rare occurrence? Yeah. Um, I don't have the answer. I'm no, just wondering out loud. Uh, yeah, yeah, I've... In my initial reaction to this is there's a historically there are other companies that have done this. There's a commercial product from a company called RV Networks. We did a show with them recently talking about their ability to do a distributed load balancer like this. They have a controller and then they can horizontally scale and distribute the state. So um and this works for this environment. They don't use this sidecar proxy. But I think the way that Istio and Envoy work is it's not just about doing the load balancing. It's also about getting visibility into the requests because you don't have any network tools that can give you visibility and because your containers don't have any visibility. And, you know, collecting logging from containers is somewhat unfeasible. So now you're making containers just to collect telemetry. Um, You're making containers to monitor your containers. Yes, well, to telemetry your containers, and I was sort of thinking, sitting in my thing, I was thinking to myself, yes. why don't you just do it properly and get some telemetry into container infrastructure, into Docker, or you know whatever the container infrastructure is? It's like infrastructure got forgotten somewhere along the way here. Well, and I and I wonder if that's not where this evolves is that it just becomes part of the part of Docker or part of the. Uh, uh, I'll call it the Cloud infrastructure service. itself, yeah. the, where it belongs, versus so it, yes, versus being this. I could imagine that Google or Amazon would eventually just offer this telemetry as a service, potentially, and they could use. Well, that actually no, they couldn't because the way that their infrastructure is put together, they would never be able to do that. I don't think. Well, no, no I wouldn't say never. It would be unlikely that they could. At the scale that they're operating, to provide a customized telemetry solution would be could potentially be so enormously complex that it wouldn't be possible. Amazon already offers something like that. Um, I'm trying to think of the name of it uh, of the service that they provide, and I don't know why it's escaping me right now. But they offer a service. <laughs> There's where so you many can of get, them; it's so uh, easy to forget. Uh, <laughs> There's so many. There are hundreds and hundreds uh, <laughs> yeah. of them. Yeah. Exactly. And they all have uh, unique names that uh, uh, often escape me until I do some Googling or something. Uh, but they they offer some visibility um, and telemetry data. Um, I think it would be possible, even at scale. I think we could see them in Azure. I think we could see them in Google. Mm. And I think we could see them in, in Amazon. But it's how quickly containers take off. Uh, to the point where everyone is using containers for everything, and that's simply not the case right now. There, there's interest. It, it, the world of containers is much more in the world of, I think, the developer side. Um, there are people that are using them in production, but using them for mission critical production workloads. I don't think there are as many examples out there. I think they exist. There's just not a lot of them compared to. VMs, where people have been using them in production mission critical workloads for a long time now. Uh, all of the technologies follow this cycle, and I'm, I'm certainly not implying that we won't see production workloads 
running in containers uh, in mass. But I also wonder, will there be something that uh, moves beyond the container that comes uh, comes out before we get there? I don't know. Yeah, I, uh, I just want to be careful here and say a lot of this is I'm reading these documentation on the fly and to these load balancers. And historically, we, this has been solved inside of enterprises and service providers by providing load balancing instances that are actually in the network, as you say, like in they're fundamentally switches that have load balancing built into them. And that's what load balancing products from companies like F5 and Riverbed and, you know, there's a whole raft of companies who do um, application delivery engines. And that's the optimal way or has been the optimal way to do that. But if you can't get access to the physical network to put these into the flow, you can run them as an ES instance quite often as a VM. But if you're going to put them into a container environment, I don't know if these load balancers work optimally. And then you end up with what Istio is doing. So I guess that brings us back around to what you were saying about the network is there is a time when perhaps doing something in the network makes sense, whereas other times it doesn't. Exactly, which is which is kind of, uh, as you said, has brought me full circle as, as far as trying to uh, trying to see are there things that could be done in the network and, and is it time? And the conclusion I've reached uh, after being educated, after writing the series has been uh, the network's simply been been commoditized to the point where I don't know if we will ever see it um, mm. unless someone invents a new type of network device. I wouldn't even speculate as to what uh, what the new network device would be, but it would have to be fundamentally changed from the ground up um, to deal with all of the things we've talked about and to be dynamically um, adaptable and updatable um, because of how rapidly things uh, are changing now. And I, I think that's part of the push for why we see uh, software projects like Istio is because of that dynamic, I want to spin up 100 containers. Or if we go down the, the path of, again, air quotes, serverless, where I simply deploy these uh, these functions, trying the back end of how those functions work, uh, you're spinning up something that looks like a container or a controlled mm. process in the operating system. No, uh, well, interestingly, there is actually some transitions coming in the network silicon. So uh, today, most of the ASICs inside of a networking device are actually fixed. That is that, that at time, the features are welded into the silicon tape out. And so when the ASIC goes into production, that's the features that you've got. And by and large, the amount of flexibility or programmability of those ASICs is very, very limited. And yet, in the last six months, we've seen the emergence of companies like Barefoot Networks with their Tofino, uh, Cavium with their Xpliant chipset, and you know Broadcom's got some programmability in their Trident range, and you know no doubt they're going to respond competitively to what's happening. And this may mean that we can actually reprogram packets inside the silicon quite flexibly. And that would mean that you could start to do network functions in the switches if you could program them as part of your overall service architecture. And you could implement a, a load balancer in the switch. Now, there's a whole bunch of potential struggles there in terms of security and integrity where instead of implementing a load balancer in a container on top of an x86, you start configuring the switch underneath your cloud provider. So I doubt that they would ever do that. But, you know, that's, that's a potential. Agree. I, I think there's potential. The question will be how it evolves, especially since a lot of the cloud providers and things um, 
well, the big cloud providers are building their own switches at this point, and they're doing it because uh, because they can do that more cheaply. Yeah, well, they're going to use these, uh, the first generation of these programmable silicons, it, it would seem, are going to be used for telemetry purposes. So as the packet comes into the switch, you, you might choose to say, well, I'm going to add some information to the packet um, and then as it moves through the network, I can add more information to the to the packet to say it went from this switch to this switch and it was received at this, you know, highly accurate timestamp. And, and then when it gets to the other side, you can see how long it took to cross uh, the network backbone, if that makes sense. And there is a, 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 a possibility that you would then, that will be the first generation. And then they could use that for their own debugging at first points to identify hotspots or latency spots inside of their underlying network and everything's an overlay, blah, blah, blah. But maybe in the future they could extend that to something else. I'm, I don't know if that's unfeasibly complicated or not. That's beyond my pay grade. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's beyond both of ours. Yeah. I mean, there, there, I guess what I'm trying to say is that there are changes coming in the sense that networking is evolving, albeit slowly, because you made a very good point. And in fact, one of my favorite points, which is in the um, – in your early point, which is that network gear has stagnated so much that software infrastructure came over a large swath of functionality that should live in software on the network equipment. Um, not all of that I would agree with, but the fact that network gear has stagnated so much, I would strongly agree with. I think, um, you know, there has been very little innovation in networking gear in the last 20 years, but more recently we've actually seen, you know, the arrival of cloud and the arrival of low-cost manufacturing, uh, in particular the silicon companies who make CPUs and baseband modems and the arrival of smartphones has grown the size of the silicon market so large that all of a sudden the cost of making the chips that go inside of network equipment is viable to companies who just make silicon. We don't have to be a custom, you know, a specialist networking company to be able to make networking silicon anymore. Right, right. Well, and, and I think that's why the network is going to be an interesting place over the next um, – Really, I say over the next seven years, mm. and I pick seven because um, there's a whole nother aspect in IoT and machine-to-machine communications, um, which we're going to see an order of magnitude or more increase, um, and that's going to bring along even more challenges. Uh, and when you look at uh, uh, 5G, and I look at all of those things. Um, some they're going to impact networks in so many different ways. Uh, we we won't be able to fix all of that by adding a sidecar to a container. Yes, adding a sidecar to a container at 100 gigabits per second, you might start burning more CPU than the sidecar's worth. I agree with you. I, I think that's <laughs> that's where uh, things get really interesting. Um, and and I thought about well maybe uh, and I'll. Pro- Propose this. This is something I, I uh, was considering writing about. Perhaps something gets added to the host servers themselves to enable the sidecar instances uh, server side. Hmm. So maybe there's coordination, but, but maybe it happens in specialized hardware on the server um, uh, that then ties into the network. The way that public cloud is going, and it's going to be a substantial percentage of the market and ultimately 
when you're operating at a scale with 80,000 physical servers in a single data center, and then you have four data centers to a campus, and then you have four campuses to a location like Amazon does, right? And you're talking about 400,000, 600,000 servers in a single location. Doing, And then on top of that, you run a 200 to 1 uh, compression ratio of VMs to servers. And if you're doing containers, you might be running 800 or 1,000 containers per physical instance. Those sorts of numbers rapidly get out of control. And if you start doing something in physical network equipment, I'm not sure that that that's possible at that sort of scale. That's that's like the, the fallacy of mass customization, which is, you know, I can produce an iPhone, which is unique for every single person, but you pick up the hardware and guess what? It's exactly the same for every single person. And it's only the software that makes it unique to that person. Does that make sense? It does. I'm, I'm simply proposing that if everything went to containers, maybe there's an ASIC added to all of those physical servers that assists in uh, um, uh, in those yeah. transparent proxies or in some function like that. Uh, I'm, I'm not saying that we would... Yeah. Okay. No, I get you. So the answer there is then uh, accessing silicon on the server becomes a security issue. How do you multi-tenancy that feature so that no other software on the server can be isolated? can see the configuration you put into silicon. So today it's done using DPDK, which is the data plane development kit that Intel championed. And uh, when the packets come in, they go through a hardware accelerated data plane and up into the software. And the drivers are, many network drivers are using that hardware acceleration to improve performance. And in the case of Amazon and Google, they quite often use their own custom NICs. They actually have their own custom silicon in the NIC to do further acceleration. So if they could design that custom silicon in that NIC to have those load balancing type functions or traffic steering functions and do it in such a way that they could isolate each traffic with a high degree of security, like very, very high degree of security that's not vulnerable to attack from inside the container, then that's possible, but that sounds dubious when you say it. When I when I say it like that, I don't think that's going to work. And you may be right. Uh, it, it's it's more of a curiosity of um, you know, is it possible? And maybe it maybe it's something that uh, that is acceptable for people that are running private clouds, and maybe the big cloud providers uh, end up with a different solution. Um, it, mm. I, I don't know. It's, yeah. again, this more speculation of, yeah. of... Well, I don't know if we've solved anything yet, but we've had a great conversation. I agree. Um, <laughs> and, and I learned some, and hopefully uh, the listeners uh, uh, learned some things as well. Yeah. That's really what, at least for me, what this is all about is to mm. further my knowledge and understanding. Um, and hopefully others get to come along for that, that ride as well. Yeah. Well, uh, Dave, thanks so much for coming along today. I really appreciate it. Why don't you tell people where they can find you on the internet? Uh, sure. The easiest uh, the easiest places are on Twitter. I'm just uh, McCrory on Twitter, so M-C-C-R-O-R-Y on Twitter. Or my blog, which is blog.mccrory, again, same spelling, dot M-E. Uh, those are the best places to find me. Um, reach out. I'm happy to respond and have conversations. And uh, again, hopefully uh, uh, we both learn more. That's, yeah. uh, that's really what I'm interested in. 
Challenging. So I have been collecting a bunch of links. So as we walked along here, I collected links to things like Istio and Envoy. And if you want to find them, you can find them on the blog post on the packetpushes.net website that accompanies this podcast. I'm Greg Farrow. You can find me on various forms of social media. I'm on the Twitters. It's at Ethereal Mind. I occasionally visit LinkedIn and so forth. And of course, my blog is etherealmind.com where I do microblogging and long form blogging is of course at packetpushes.net. You can find this and many more fine free technical podcasts along with our community blog and news site at packetpushes.net. You can follow the Packet Pushes on Twitter as at Packet Pushes, also on LinkedIn, Facebook. And if you really, really would, please leave us, rate us on iTunes and tell your friends about us because uh, once they know about it, they can have more and then we can continue to bring you content like this. And as always, remember that too much technology would never be enough.